All right, well, we are going to turn our attention to God's Word. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. We, um, this fall, as we are thinking about what does it look like to regather after this period of exile when we haven't been gathering together as a church. And Nehemiah is, uh, is our guide in, in terms of what does it look like to rebuild and regather and worship together as God's people. And we are taking this roughly, well, we're taking a chapter, uh, um, a chapter every week. And so we're going to read and talk about Nehemiah chapter 4 this morning. So let me read Nehemiah 4 for us. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they receive, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Then Nehemiah responds, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sins be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the, re that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be clothed, closed, they were angry. They were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers and your sons, your daughters your and your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that it, was now, that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on the construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be on guard for us by night and labor by day. 
So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. That means they didn't go home. (laughs) Each kept his weapon at his right hand. And this is God's word. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, this morning, as we uh, gather together, whether we come uh, hopefully and eagerly convinced that you are a God and you love us, or whether we come skeptically, dejectedly beat up by uh, things that we have done and things that have done to us, God, we pray that you would speak to us. Would by your word and spirit, you speak good news into our hearts, into our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So several years ago, I built a, um, a gift for a friend of mine. I know I said last week that in general, if you need help building something, don't call your pastor. Um, <laughs> I actually, some of you know, like to build stuff and I'm pretty good at it. And so I built a lamp to give to my friend for his birthday. And what I did is I went to Home Depot and I bought an electrical outlet And in the front of this electrical box, I put an outlet and a switch, okay? I'm going to describe something that hopefully you can picture. (laughs) So there's an outlet and a switch, and and there's a bulb on top, and the the switch turns the light on and off. And then coming out the back, there was an extension cord that you plug into the wall, okay? So you with me? So he could set it on top of the desk, plug it into the wall, and turn the light on and off with the switch, and then he could, like, plug his phone into the electrical outlet. And so I was building this thing to give to my friend. And as I was finishing it up, one of my kids came and was looking at it and was asking how it works. And one of my boys said, so can you take that cord and plug it into the front? If you do that, will it work? No, I know like 90% of you are engineers. So is that going to work? It's not going to work, right? And I took it and I plugged it in and I flipped the switch and it doesn't work. Right, so why doesn't it work? Because a light has to have an external source of power in order to shine, right? And the same thing is true of you and me. We live in a culture that says you find life by looking inside yourself. And the truth is that just like a light cannot shine on the basis of its own power, you and I don't find life within ourselves, but we find life by connecting to an external source of life. Christian Smith is a sociologist at Notre Dame. Uh, He spent two decades studying the spiritual and religious lives of young adults. And he recently released a book that I actually think Christian Smith is is a Christian, but he's writing as a sociologist, and he's describing the way that parents of any religion pass down their religious beliefs to their children. And so they, they interviewed hundreds of people, um, not just Christians, also Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, um, and then a control group of, of, uh, of agnostics, I think. And um, I've been reading this book this week, and he, he reports two key findings at the beginning of this book. And, it, and it, it's not even really what the book is about, but he's talking about the assumptions and sort of cultural models that parents bring to the task of parenting, and, and, and especially what does it look like for parents to pass down their faith to their children. And so two key findings, he, he reports, are these. The first is this, 
that parents believe, religious parents believe, that the purpose of life is to lead a happy and good life in the dual sense of both having life go well, enjoying success and happiness, and living life rightly, meaning doing what is morally right. So the purpose of life, Americans believe, is to live a happy and good life. So what makes for a happy and good life? Well, the second key finding is this. A good life is one in which individuals are happy, live ethically, work hard, enjoy family and friends, and help other people. Okay. Do you see what he, what he just said? The purpose of life is to live a, to be happy. A good life is one in which you are happy. And a, and, and a um, I had to write this down because it's, it's circular and I'm going to get confused. <laughs> the purpose of life is to live a happy and good life. And a good life is defined by, as being a life in which you are happy. <laughs> it's completely circular and therefore incoherent. Are you happy? No. Well, you need to be Better. How do I be better? Well, by being happy. It's like taking the light and plugging it into itself and wondering why it doesn't turn on and off. And my point is, oh, here's the other crazy thing. Of the hundreds of, of people they interviewed, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and agnostics, not a single person disagreed with either of those premises. Not a single American parent that they interviewed disagreed with one of them. And so my point isn't to tell you that you should try to live an unhappy life or something like that, but I really just want to point out that the idea that we should all be happy and good, and we are good if we are happy, is a circular argument that is incoherent. And perhaps the reason that so many of us are so exhausted after a year and a half of a pandemic that has upended everything is because we are looking for a source of life internal to ourselves, instead of connecting to the author of life who is external from us. And I raise all this because I think that the Bible and the Christian view of life in general, and this passage in particular, will be fundamentally incoherent as long as we believe that a good life is one in which we are happy and a happy life is one in which we are good. Because what's happening in this passage is something fundamentally different than looking inside ourselves when we face challenges and mustering the will to soldier on. As long as we think that the source of life and happiness is within us, we will experience frustration and exhaustion when we are trying to be the power source of our own life. And when we do that and life throws obstacles in our way and external realities interrupt our lives, we will view them as you know, things we need to ignore or avoid or just try harder to overcome. But if we go back to the light that I built for my friend, that approach to avoiding obstacles is sort of like taking the light plugged into itself and thinking maybe if I put it on a bigger table, it'll start to generate its own light. Or maybe if I put it on a higher table, or maybe it's the tables don't work and I put it on a chair and it'll generate its own life and light there. This passage presents a totally different approach to life. It's a life where self is not both source and goal. It's a life of living for something much bigger than ourselves because we have a source of life that is outside of ourselves. And it's a life in which contentment, contentment rather than just happiness, is a byproduct. It's a life where you can thrive no matter what's going on, no matter what sorts of challenges face us 
So here's what I want you to see in this passage. Number one, there will be opposition, but God will succeed in his plan, so we will labor at the work. So firstly, there will be opposition. There will be opposition. God has um, called his people to regather and to rebuild, and they are rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem so they have safety and protection and can gather for worship. And as soon as they begin this work, uh, there's opposition. So Sanballat and Tobiah return. We saw them earlier. These are the two main antagonists in the book of Nehemiah. They're going to keep showing up over and over to oppose God's work through Nehemiah. And their opposition to this work takes two forms. In the first part of the um, passage, in verses 1 through 6, they think that if they just like make fun of the Jews, that they will be demoralized, that they will be confused, and that they will stop working because they have had their competence and their perseverance questions. So that's verses 1 through 6, and then when that doesn't work, they resort to physical intimidation in the second half of the chapter. And I think that the main thing that we should take away from this reality uh, is just an awareness that there will be opposition. And, 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 and there's a sense in which that kind of makes sense to us. I think in general, we know that anything that's worth doing well will be hard and people like, will oppose it at some point, just as a general fact of life. But specifically, this passage is saying for Christians, we will face opposition in this world. When our lives are shaped by the reality of who God is and the reality of who God is shapes the way that we interact with others and the things that we care about, and the way that we use our time and our resources is shaped by who God says we are, there will be people who will, you know, verbally oppose us, who will try to make fun of you, um, who will try to demoralize or confuse, and then at times, though we probably, I don't think, really experience physical intimidation, here in this place, there are countless thousands of Christians around the world who face physical intimidation because of their faith. And the point, I think, is simply to say, don't be surprised. <laughs> don't be surprised when you face opposition. And I think that it's important to clarify that that's the takeaway. Don't be surprised when people oppose you because there can be a tendency, I think, to sort of like obsess over the reality of opposition. And I would say that one of the defining characteristics of a fundamentalist worldview, whether it's the fundamentalism of the right or the fundamentalism of the left, is to sort of be motivated by the fact that others are opposing what you're doing. It's a fear-based approach to life. And this passage is not advocating for that sort of posture, a sort of posture that obsesses over the fact that we are being persecuted. And, and, and the Bible isn't encouraging us to define ourselves in such a way. Rather, this passage is encouraging us, encouraging us to simply be realistic about the world that we live in, to open our eyes and, and not try to pretend that, you know, opposition doesn't come uh, at Christians or at the church in general. The, the passage is encouraging us to not be surprised and kind of like uh, be flustered and just give up on the work when we face opposition. You know, I, I remember as a teenager, as a kid, I had what um, my parents, my mom would say, I think, was an overly developed sense of justice. 
you know, <laughs> I wanted everything to be fair. And um, I played soccer growing up, and as I, you know, kind of early teens got to playing in more competitive leagues and, and that sort of thing, uh, I, I would be really frustrated at the injustice of, you know, getting pushed and bumped and stuff as I'm trying to, like, score a goal. And I remember after a game just being, being so dejected and how could the referee not see what was going on? And my dad kind of sitting me down and saying, Bryce, if you think that you're just going to dribble up the middle of the field and they're just going to let you do that and nobody's going to, like, attack, <laughs> you probably should stop playing soccer now. <laughs> if, you're, if you're trying to do something like that, people are going to going to attack you, bodies are going to collide. Don't be surprised by that reality. And the same is true for God's people. We will face opposition. Don't be surprised. Don't let it ruin your life. Don't obsess over it. Don't define yourself as an oppressed person. Um, definitely, like, don't go looking for it. I mean, the Bible talks a lot about the reality of how God uses suffering in our lives. It doesn't mean you should go looking for it or inviting it. It'll find you. Don't worry. But don't be surprised when it does. But be ready, because we will face opposition, and God will actually use it to shape and form us, okay? So don't be surprised. The, the, there, there will be opposition, external opposition. But the second thing in this passage, I think, is that God will succeed in his plan. And this is the antidote to sort of the fundamentalist, fear-driven, we know we're right because there are people opposing us attitude towards well, life, I guess. There's so many different forms that can take. The remarkable thing about this passage is that the opposition doesn't really slow the work down that much. I, um, well, I mentioned this last week. We're going to see they built the wall. They rebuilt the wall around the city of Jerusalem that had lain in ruins for 140 years. They rebuilt the wall in 52 days. The opposition doesn't really slow them down. When we're not surprised by opposition, when we encounter it, it turns us back towards God himself, and it begins to bear fruit. Um, you know, the famous passage in James chapter 1 says, Consider it joy when you face all kinds of trials, because the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness. God is using the fact that there is opposition in your life and opposition to the church, the Christian church in general to bear fruit, to bear the fruit of faithfulness, tenacity, steadfastness in our lives. Here in Nehemiah, at every point when they face opposition, the people's response is exactly the same. Every time they face opposition, they are turned back towards God himself. I mean, look at a couple of these places. In verses 4 and 5, when they are jeering at them, which just says they're taunting them verbally, then Nehemiah prays, hear us, O God, and protect us. When they face physical intimidation in verse 9, Nehemiah says, we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection. In verse 14, he encourages the people saying, don't be afraid, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. In verse 20, he says again, our God will fight for us. Over and over again, when they are faced with a specific instance of op opposition, the response is to look back towards God, to turn towards God, to pray, to remember that God is the one who will fight for his people. When God's people are called to regather and rebuild, we will face opposition. It's not an if, it's a when, but don't, so don't be surprised. The question is not, 
if we will face opposition, the question is how will we respond when we do? Will we respond with our own strength? Will we respond by trying harder? Will we respond Will we respond with a planning meeting or a prayer meeting? Will we turn towards God or will we white-knuckle it out ourselves? Do we try to anticipate difficult situations so that we can just avoid them? This passage reminds us that the source of our strength, the source of our life, is not found by looking into our own hearts and resolving to do better and be stronger. The source of our life as Christians is external to ourselves. It is God himself. God is our life and our defender. Okay, so how does that strike you? <laughs> uh, because, you know, you showed up and you came to church and the pastor says, don't worry, like, God's going to defend you. And I wonder if that maybe sounds a little bit trite to you. It sounds like pious advice. And all I can um, tell you is that uh, I have learned over the last, I would say, year, just how true, through experience, I've learned how true it is that God is the one who defends us. I've believed it for years. I've taught people for years that God is the one who defends us. But in the last year, uh, I've actually learned that through experience. Some of, not all of you know our story, but almost exactly a year ago, I resigned from the church that um, our family had planted in, in Southern California that I pastored for five or six years. Um, we, we, Ashley and I just kind of got to the place where we believed we had reached the end of the road in, in what God was calling us to do, and it was time for us to move on. And so we sort of just jumped off a cliff. <laughs> I resigned. We had no idea what the future would hold. Um, we had no idea how we would provide financially for our family. We just jumped off a cliff into the unknown. But what we found was that um, God cares for his people. God, God is the one who fights for us and defends us. We learned through experience that that was actually true. There were so many areas of life where I was just white-knuckling it. And when I finally let go, I discovered that it was God that was holding me the whole time. And after six years of like just financial stress, and it was really hard, <laughs> the solution, it turns out, was just quitting. <laughs> I resigned from my job. We sold our house, and some generous friends gave us like a beach house, a beach mansion to live in, where we lived for like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine months for free. And we just enjoyed this season of rest as a family. God cares for his people. God provides for his people. And there's nothing unique about me or special about me that makes that happen. God loves you. He cares for you. And I wonder if the opportunity that we face in this season is as God's people, will we learn to hit pause and look to God as our life and our defender and our guide when we're exhausted and we're frustrated? Because the challenges, let's be honest, like we all know this, the challenges are real. The personal challenges, the corporate challenges, the, uh, you know, there's the question of COVID and what's that going to mean? The economic, economic pressures of just like paying the bills and making things, uh, making ends meet financially, raising kids and all of this is coming at a moment of what feels like profound cultural upheaval 
and we're not going to simply solve those problems by planning better. So church, please hear this. You have a God who fights for you. You have a God who loves you, who defends you. God is for you. He is committed to you. In Jesus, he has given up, he, he has lived a perfect life on your behalf. He has died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. Dying and rising again, Jesus now prays for you and he has sent his Holy Spirit to live in you, to lead you, to minister to you, to guide you, to give you wisdom. He is all in for you. You have a source of life that is secure because it doesn't depend on you. It's not internal to you. It doesn't depend on your feelings or your willpower. Will we turn to him? Will we look to him when we are faced with challenges, with oppositions? In this moment that we're living through where many of us went into the summer, you know, four months ago, I think with these hopes that we'd beaten COVID and things are going to go back to normal and life is going to be great again, and then it turns out that none of that really happened. And many of us feel like we're just exhausted and riding the roller coaster of what's going to come next. This passage is holding out hope for us that there is a rest and a contentment that cannot be found in another trip to the mountains or another weekend away. There's a source of life that is outside of ourselves because you have a God who fights for you. So what, what, what would it look like to live in light of that reality? How do we do that? Well, the third thing in this passage is, is, is the reality that we labor at the work. We have a God who fights for us, so we labor at the work. I love in verse 6, it, 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 you know, it's just said that there's been opposition that has come against uh, the Jews as they're doing this work, the people of God as they're, as they're carrying out this work. There's opposition, and then verse 6, just very matter-of-fact, so we built the wall. <laughs> and all the wall was joined together to half its height, so the people had a mind to work. Later we read that Nehemiah, he puts together a plan where half the people work and half the people stand on guard. And there's some people who have to carry heavy loads, but they've got to do it in such a way that they can access their, their sword if necessary. And there are some people who are there in the background just ready to defend at a moment's notice so that the work can continue. The book of Nehemiah has often, um, like commentaries on the book of Nehemiah are often titled something like the sword and the trowel. Um, there's this idea that in one hand we've got a trowel because we're building the wall and we're doing the work. And with the other hand we're holding the sword because we've got to defend ourselves. And I think what it's getting at is actually um, the primary challenge that the church in our time faces. Knowing that God defends us, enables us to take action. Prayer leads to work. And we tend to think of those as different things. We either pray and wait for God to work, or we do it ourselves. And the Bible has a much more holistic understanding of the way that God works and that we work. You know, we have this idea, there's this, con at the heart of Christianity is grace, God's unmerited favor, not because of anything we've done. God loves us, and he works for us, and he provides. It's not based on anything we've done to earn it. It's free, it's grace. And the, the, and the, the implication of that is often, well, 
because I have God's grace, I don't have to do anything. Nothing, there's no response required. But like I said, the Bible, what the Bible actually does is invite us to um, work with God. God invites us to be uh, co-laborers with him. I heard a story about a father and a son who were um, walking along the beach. And the, the, the little boy, maybe a toddler, uh, there, were, there were shells like scattered across the, the shore. And the little boy finds a shell and he's so excited that he's found the shell and he picks it up. And so as they continue to walk, the dad, taller, is looking ahead and seeing where the other shells are and gently guiding his son towards the next shell. And as the little boy gets there and he sees it, he goes, look what I found. You know, he's working with his dad. His dad is, is gently guiding him and working with him. And we tend to think that either God is working or we are working, but what the Bible is showing us is that our work is possible because of God's work with us. So church, let me just close <laughs> with this reminder that God is at work. God is at work. If God wasn't at work, we should stop trying. <laughs> but table, church, God is at work in our midst. And we've been praying, we've been planning, we've been hoping, we've been asking what's going to happen, and God is providing. And we think we're going to have this place to meet. <laughs> Probably should. The building's going to need work. It's going to need some TLC. We can do this together. He's calling us, God's calling us to disciple our children, disciple each other's children, and to listen to the voice of Scripture. He's calling us to love our neighbors and to pray. He's calling us to defend the poor and work for justice. And so the question I think that we face is this. Will the brokenness of our world overwhelm us and drive us to despair and some form of retreat? Or will the brokenness of our world cause us to turn towards God, knowing that there will be opposition, but God's plan, God's work will succeed, and he invites us to work with him. The last 18 months, I think if they've shown us anything, they've shown us how truly weak we are, how frail and human we are, that we don't have the solutions to all of the challenges that life throws at us. Will that drive us to frustration, to despair, to exhaustion? Or will that drive us to finally turn towards the one who is the source and author of life? He says, come to me. I love you. I will fight for you. And I will work with you.